My request has been granted. We have a gift from someone in our midst for each one of you here. It is a printout, double-sided, of the chronological timeline of the life of Paul. It includes uh, historical events, includes when the books were written. Um, in fact, you'll see why we're in First and Second Thessalonians now versus the others. And first, it's so big you will have to fold it in force to fit it into your Bible. Actually, you probably just have one half, but anyway, thank you to whoever has provided this. Uh, it is very generous of you to go to the time and effort to do this. And I'll take any extras, so if we have people who come up next week uh, and are looking for it, uh, we can provide it to them. Pretty amazing. It's the kind of stuff I run across that in my studies, but I can't print, print it out like this, so <laughs> very fun. All right, next is another handout is the text for today. Uh, you can also turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 if you'd like. Uh, and we will pick up where we left off last week. Now normally, when I am teaching these particular passages, I like to start in verse 1 and move forward. That's kind of typical methodology. <clears throat> but because we have a number of servants in our class who have to leave early, uh, there's a particular section of this scripture that I think everyone will want to hear because it's the most controversial in this entire chapter. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to jump ahead, deal with that section for all of us, and then I'll come back. It's not like something is better than others, but you're going to want to hear, um, hear this particular section. So if you have your text or your Bibles, you need to turn to verses, chapter, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 14b. So it's the second half of verse 14. And what you have here, well, I'll just read it. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. Now you can imagine why this is controversial. This is called Paul's polemic against the Jews. And anti-Semitism uh, can much, in, from the Christian standpoint, can be traced to this verse. It has been um, unfortunate. Uh, in fact, reading that verse, uh, this is what they did from the Jews who killed Jesus. If we were to say something like that in our modern society, you know, we automatically, we kind of flinch against that. Um, it's a bit of a challenge because we don't think that Paul was an anti-Semite. Well, for one thing, what was he? A Jew. So there's, there's that. Um, and yet there is a very, how should I say, distressing history of the church and against the Jews. We're probably well aware of some of those, but there may be a few of them that you're not aware of. We can go all the way back to Chrysostom in 386 AD. Chrysostom is known as one of the great church fathers. And he had a problem with the Jews. I actually found one of eight sermons that he wrote in 386 AD. 
called Ad Adversus Judaeus, against the Jews. And in this particular sermon, he compares the synagogues to pagan temples and as the source of all vices and heresies. He described the synagogue as a place worse than a brothel or a drinking shop, a den of scoundrels, a repair of wild beasts, a temple of demons, a refuge of brigands and debauchees, a cavern of devils, a criminal assembly of the assassins of Christ. This is an early church father, very influential. And he's saying things like this. He hated both the synagogues and the Jews, saying, quote, Demons dwell in the synagogue and also in the soul of the Jews. And he then described them as fit for slaughter. Hooray. Yeah, this is one of the early church fathers. Now, you want to go, well, wait a minute. The Jews didn't kill Jesus. The Romans did. Okay, if you want to get technical. But the Romans wouldn't have if it were not for the crowd and the mob crying for his death. In the Middle Ages, well, let me put it this way. When we think of anti-Semitism today, we think of World War II and the Holocaust. We also think of the Jewish ghettos, or at least even the creation of them, where they would herd them into a particular part of the city and wall it off. And what else did they have to do? They had to wear the yellow star, identifying themselves as Jews. That was not an invention of the Nazis. That was an invention of the church in the Middle Ages. I didn't know this. So I'm digging into this kind of going, okay, wow, this is real happiness. Um, the Fourth Lateran Council of 1215. The Lateran Council, it's spelled L-A-T-E-R-A-N, the Lateran Council, the fourth one. This is after the Third Crusade. There wasn't a fourth crusade, so technically the crusades are over. But the Pope, I think it was Pope Innocent or Pope Pius, one of the, one of the Innocents or Piouses, um, declared that they were going to have a council and they were going to meet. And he sent out the notice across all the empire, the Holy Roman Empire, and the meeting didn't happen for a year and a half, which meant it gave time for everyone from all the ends of the empire to come together. And there were over a thousand priests and bishops and council members at this particular council. And in this particular council, I'm not focusing on, on this here, but a side note is that it, at that council was when the Catholic Church codified the transubstantiation of the Lord's Supper. Saying this is the way it is. It is the, the bread and the wine is actually the flesh and the blood of Christ. Period. No end, end, of, end, of, end of discussion. 1215, uh, yeah, 1215 AD. However, also at that council, they decided that all Jews and Muslims had to wear a mark on their clothing to identify them as Jews and Muslims. They also banned them from holding any sort of office. It was illegal for any Jew or Muslim to hold office in the Holy Roman Empire of any sort, any public office. Now, again, I, in my typical research mode, I'm going, okay, I read that, but I want to say, what is there more? So I actually went and found the can various canons and all that and read the one about the mark. <laughs> this is almost silly, but the reason they gave was that a Christian would not accidentally marry a Jew or a Muslim. How do you accidentally marry somebody? I mean, don't you usually go, and so who's your mother and father? Oh, oh where do you live? I mean, you, or it's like, hey, baby, boop, we're married. I mean, seriously, you don't walk up into the street and just, oh, my gosh, I just happened to fall into this wedding. Um, <laughs> or you attend another one and go, oh, that looks like fun. Let's join them. I mean, that, it just didn't make sense to me, but they had to come up with some excuse. 
to create this anti-Semitism that was prevalent. Now, if you think about it, this is the end of the Third Crusade. They have been going down into Palestine and they have been fighting the Muslims. They have been warring with all of this, but the Jews were splashed by all of this. It's really, really difficult. But there's a third one that's even worse. 1543, Martin Luther. Martin Luther wrote a, a 65,000 word. That's not a small treatise. That's a book. It's an entire book called On the Jews and Their Lives. Now granted, this was when Luther was in his dotage. He was almost at the end of his life. So there have been some who are wondering if he had all of his facilities and faculties as in at the end of his life or not. Because what is written in here is, well, it's just not nice. It's not nice at all. It's violent, vehement, vindictive, intemperate, bitter, and harsh. Um, the highlights. Number one, Christians should burn down the Jewish synagogues and schools. Two, they should refuse to let Jews own houses among the Christians. Three, Jewish religious writings should be taken away. Four, the rabbis should be forbidden to preach. And five, they should not be offered protection when on the highways. The, unfortunately, the Nazis used this book as justification for some of their actions and activities. Uh, what's to be 400 years after it was written? And you want to go, oh, no. And of course, Lutherans are like, oh, they're aghast that this would have, that this actually is still around. Um, you know, people have tried to figure out why he was that anti-Semitic. Uh, if you actually go into the history of that time, he had been trying for years to convert the Jewish people in Germany, working really hard, tirelessly, and he kept running into the wall after wall after wall, and he was frustrated beyond measure. And then he basically let loose with his incredible pen. So you look at things like this and it's embarrassing. It's like discovering that Jonathan Edwards owns slaves. Really? Oh my goodness. But see, we look things through the lens of our modern eyes, don't we? We don't see things the way things were then. We also don't see the other side of the coin. We don't see necessarily the anti and violent anti-Christian sentiment that was happening. There was this constant war. And there are some that would actually have, have looked at this and said, well, it's not that, he's, that Luther or any of these people were actually against the Jews per se, but were against the religious system. Yeah, okay. But, that's history. We need to actually look at the Bible text. So was Paul an anti-Semite? There are those who say he was, because they read this verse and goes, he's blaming the Jews for Jesus' death. See? And he's always shouting about them, and look, he says they also killed the prophets. Well, here's the problem. They did! I mean, it's like stating a fact, but people saying, but we don't want to believe that fact. But is he saying it with a, and thus you need to get rid of them all? No. Paul never says that. In fact, if that were the case, he would not go to a synagogue to preach the gospel. 
he would not attempt to win their hearts to Christ. He would not be doing this. I mean, in Romans 3, uh, let me just read it here. Romans 3, 1 through 4. But what it, this is Paul writing. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Well, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. And what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. The Jew had the advantage. And he acknowledges that. And yet over in Romans chapter 11, verse 26, he says, all Israel will be saved. He is expressing that evidently. And if you want to look at Paul's own personal understanding of the death of Christ, he said in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. He's not speaking, well, he is speaking metaphorically, but you know what I mean. He's saying, I'm responsible for his death. My sins are what put him on the cross. And in 1 Timothy 1.13, he very openly says, I was a blasphemer. I blasphemed the name of Christ. So to say he is anti-Semite is just completely unfounded. Well, if we look at Jesus, Jesus was, oh wait, a Jew. And what did he say in Matthew Let's see, Matthew 23. I'll just read some passages for you. Matthew 23, verse 29 and following. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You build the tombs of the prophets, meaning you killed them, and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we should not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves <coughs> that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. And then over in Luke chapter 13, chapter 13, verse 34. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent how often I have gathered your children together as a hen, gathered her brood under her wings. And then the ultimate statement is the people of Israel themselves. Matthew 27, verse 24 and following. When Pilate saw he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of the man's blood. See to it yourselves. And how did the people respond? His blood be on us, his blood be on us and on our children. Amen. And so here we are. Here we are. We have, what, 20 some odd years later? We have Paul writing to the Thessalonians. Now, granted, in the context, which is why this is a little dangerous to pull it out of context, but it's always thrown at us out of context. So let's deal with it here as if someone were throwing this in your face at work. And you have to say, well, Paul was a Jew. Jesus was a Jew. The people claimed it. They owned it. It was a fact. They were participants in this. But it does not mean they are unsavable. It does not mean, and the thing is, we're all guilty of killing Christ. All of us, every one of us in this room. His death on the cross was for us and because of us. Not just because I, I'm half German. It has nothing to do with it. Absolutely nothing to do with it. Race is not the question here. Not at all. And we have to be very careful on those who bring that out. So. Well, you know, there's a, there's a verse in Isaiah 53 that it pleased God to crush them. 
So it wasn't a choice of the Romans to kill Jesus, it's God to kill Jesus. He just, just used them to accomplish his will. Well, that's one way of saying, uh, interpreting it, yes. Edmund Hebert said this, the Roman historian Tacitus charged the Jews with hostile odium toward all men. In general, the Gentiles in that day regarded Jews as an unsociable and unfriendly race. This misreading of their true nature arose out of a misunderstanding of their religious exclusiveness, which made them separate themselves from all other people. While beginning as a nation divinely called to be a separate people, the Jews had become a sinfully exclusive and bigoted nation. When God overruled their perverted nationalism, they reacted in bitter hostility. But Paul well understood that their hostility was grounded not in their natural makeup, but in their rejection of the gospel. And there's the difference. It's not that they were born that way. It's they chose to reject the gospel, and there's the hostility. Oh. Let's go back to... Uh, First one of chapter two. We'll start over as if I just started the day. Yes, yes, comment. Well, in Romans nine three, I mean, Paul, I think, states that he's an, that he's not anti-Semitic. Yes. He says that he would worship, worship, wish that he was cursed for his kinsmen. Right. The entire chapters nine through eleven. Yeah. It's Paul's treatise on what Israel is in the kingdom of God. And it's very evident. But what happens is people will pull this one verse out and say, see, the Jews killed Jesus. We need to kill them. It's ignorant. And it's really unfortunate when you see people like Chrysostom and the, the, the Middle Ages and then Luther of all people coming off with something, whoa. That's very uncomfortable and very, you know what? Luther wasn't Jesus. <laughs> he wasn't perfect. Calvin wasn't perfect, despite the fact that a lot of people put him up on a pedestal. I mean, he was uh, somewhat responsible for having people burned at the stake because they disagreed with him. So you have to be kind of careful when we uh, make statues you can make a statue to honor someone, but when you start kneeling at it and worshiping it, that's another thing. Well, and that's where we have a problem. Well, we're not the sins of our fathers unless we repeat. So, let's start back. Chapter, chapter 2, verse 1. Alright? Now, when I began this story, so I'm, I'm basically imagining that we're now at 9.30 and I'm starting over. All right, we just <laughs> spent 20 Good morning, yes, how are you all doing here? <laughs> How's the cough? It's still around. Yay, day 50 some odd forever. Uh, I think I will leave this until my last breath. Anyway, in my preliminary studies of this chapter, I was looking at various commentaries, listening to various sermons, uh, from very well-known preachers, and almost to a person, they look at these first <coughs> these first eleven verses as a description of pastoral ministry. In fact, I even think you have a header in your Bible, in the ASV anyway. It's called Paul's ministry to the Thessalonians. So it's this idea that this is a model of what a pastor looks like. And that's an admirable interpretation and an accurate one. But I'm not quite sure Paul was writing to, Thessalonian, to the Thessalonians of how to be preachers. I'm not sure that was his intent. He was expressing his love for the people. He was, he was defending himself against something, we're not quite exactly sure what, we can figure it out by implication. But I think there's more to this, potentially, and partly because I don't want anyone to come away from this study and think, oh, that's nice for the pastors, but it doesn't apply to me. Because the text applies to each one of us. 
without question. Now, two things that I came across that help us remind us to set the tone and the scene of what is in the city of Thessalonica. Thessalonica. Ugh. They should have come up with a much easier pronounceable name. I just, you know, this should be called Dallas or something. Um, Leon Morris wrote this. He says, there's probably never been such a variety of cults and philosophic systems as in Paul's day. East and West had united and intermingled to produce an amalgam of real piety, high moral principles, crude superstition, and gross license. Oriental mysteries, Greek philosophy, local godlings competed for favor under the tolerant aegis of Roman indifference. Holy men of all creeds and countries, popular philosophers, magicians, astrologers, crackpots and cranks, the sincere and the spurious, the righteous and the rogue, swindlers and saints jostled and clamored for the attention of the credulous and the skeptical. He's not describing Paul's day. He's describing today. This is exactly what we live in. We have this cacophony of warring ideas. So I came across a column, and I, I, again, I read widely and constantly. Uh, this columnist wrote this last Thursday. Well, this is really contemporary, where it's only three days old from being posted. A guy named John Zmerich. He wrote this. He says, we're terrified of the real God. So we're scrambling for substitutes. We smashed all the saints on the altars. And now we're setting back up the idols they'd replaced. We're looking for figures like the Olympians who weren't our moral betters. You think of the Greek gods. They were just like us, they just had more power. But they were horrible people. They just created gods that looked like themselves, is what the Greeks did. They'll approve our sacrifice of infants, which is what has just been happening in our legislation. I mean, Francis Schaeffer called that in 1976, 77, with his uh, documentary, How Then Shall We Live? And uh, he talks about that you start with abortion, you will end up with infanticide. And here we are 40 years later, and now we have people saying, so what's wrong with that? If the mom doesn't want it, you do realize that in Roman culture, a baby was not considered born until it was accepted by the father. And if the father rejected the baby, the baby was taken to the walls of the city and dropped over the side. Are we Rome? Worse. They'll approve our sacrifice of infants. They'll offer us cloudy utopian visions of the future which will blossom with justice and flowers in the form of a green new deal. We're despondent, distracted, and petulant. And that's why we whore after strange gods. Very powerful statement from a Christian writer talking about our culture. And this is the culture into which we walk every single day. And we're called to this higher calling to be unified with Christ. And here, Paul in the early church, speaking to a church that was less than three months old. I mean, you know, again, we did it last week, but take the calendar and we just started this church in December. And before it had begun, within one month of it beginning, our founder, our leader, the one who inspired us, left town in the middle of the night and never came back. It's exactly what Paul did. 
He was run out of town. Yeah, he went from Thessalonica to Berea. We see that in Acts chapter 17, in the middle of the night. Now imagine the Thessalonian church waking up on Tuesday and going, oh, I can't wait to have that Bible study with Paul tonight. And someone says, uh, he's gone. What do you mean he's gone? Yeah, he left in the middle of the night last night. Oh, is he coming back? Well, we don't know. I mean, his Twitter account is dark. <laughs> he hasn't posted on Facebook for 24 hours. We don't know where he is. Um, and so those that had run him out of town started whispering in the ears of those who had been inspired to gather together in that church and said, see, he's just another one of the phonies who keep coming through Thessalonica. How many of them have we seen who get people all riled up and spun up and then they're gone at the next ship after they get our money? You can see how that could happen very easily and very quickly. And so, those months later, now Paul has gone from Berea to Athens. He's now in Corinth and he's writing this letter to the Thessalonians. He had sent Timothy back to the church to say, what's going on back there? You know, And Timothy brings back a great report, but more than likely, Timothy also brought back some of the things that had been said. So, we have in chapter 2, verse 1, For you yourselves know, that word know, you find the word know in verse 1, verse 5, you find the verse rem word remember in verse 9, you also find the word know in verse 11. In fact, nine times in the book of 1 Thessalonians, Paul says, you know. He's reminding them that they were witnesses. They were, uh, they were there. They know the truth. You know, brothers, that our coming to you is not in vain. Oh, that word vain is a lot of fun, actually. What other translations have there in the room that have something other than vain? Anybody? Is there any other translation? Failure. Failure. Yeah, that's that's the other possibility. I think that's the NIV. Am I right, or is that the NASB? NIV. Yeah. Uh, so our coming to you was not in vain, or was not a failure. It's the Greek word. Ah, I already messed it up. Keno. We know the word. Kenosis. From the Philippian passage where Jesus emptied himself. And that's the theory of kenosis in uh, discussions about the divinity uh, of Christ and and all of that, and the humanity of Christ is how much of himself did he empty? So that word keno is to empty. So that's why the ESV would use the word uh, vain. So here's the question. It was not in vain, it was not in failure, but it was not empty, not empty of what? What does he mean? It wasn't in vain, it wasn't empty. Usually, when we read that, we would think it was not empty of results. Problem is, the next verse doesn't really address that because he has the word but, the beginning of verse 2, which means he's contrasting with what he just said. But if we look at it as it was not empty of purpose, it changes the meaning. If we say we, that, that Paul and the Thessalonians were looking for specific results, meaning numbers or whatever, success, that's one thing. But their coming was not empty of purpose. All throughout this chapter, Paul uses the negative to present his positive. You'll see the negative all the time. 
It's frustrating because it's a little kind of backwards in our thinking. It says, but we thought, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated in Philippi, just write in your margins, Acts 16, where they were, let's see, stripped of their clothes, beaten, thrown in jail, dumped in the deepest, darkest part of the prison, and put in leg stocks. Happy times. And shamefully treated. They were insulted at Philippi, as you know. We had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. I love this quote from John MacArthur who writes, There is always pressure to mitigate the message, to be inoffensive to sinners, to make the gospel acceptable. But such a compromise has no place in Paul's strategy. Instead, he had full confidence in God's power to overcome all opposition and achieve his redemptive purpose. The servant of God preaches the true, unmitigated message God has laid out in his word, not some other message. He does so for the sake of truth, not for personal popularity. And when opposition comes, he trusts in the power of God and stays obedient to his calling. This is illustrated in our early American history by an evangelist named Peter Cartwright. Peter Cartwright spent 70 years uh, preaching the word <coughs> throughout the United States at the time. And one Sunday, he was asked to speak at a Methodist church in the southern part of the U.S. During the song, just before the message, the pastor of the church whispered to the evangelist who was about to preach, Peter Cartwright, and said, um, Andrew Jackson has just come into the sanctuary. And you need to be careful of what you say unless you offend our famous guest. So, Peter Cartwright, knowing the fear of the, that Proverbs 29, 25, the fear of man brings a snare, he was determined not to compromise the truth. He boldly proclaimed the gospel. In fact, halfway through the sermon, he said, I understand that Andrew Jackson is president in the, present in the congregation today. If he does not repent of his sins and accept Jesus Christ as his personal Savior, he will be just as lost as anyone else who has never asked God for his forgiveness. Now, if we had a celebrity in our congregation and our pastor called him out by name, the whole room would go, what's he doing? Or what if it's the billionaire in the pew? who underwrote the building of this building. If that man has been doing things improperly or has not brought his life to Christ, is it the place to do it publicly or with boldness? Depends on the situation, obviously. For Peter Cartwright, it was no problem. But instead of becoming angry, Andrew Jackson admired the preacher for his courage. Mm. He listened with keen interest and felt such deep conviction that after the service, Cartwright led him to the Lord. And that from that moment on, the two of them were best friends. So if you feel like, wow, that's going to be politically incorrect for me to make that statement, or I might offend somebody, doggone it, the gospel of Jesus is offensive. Because it's telling someone they're doing something wrong and that they're sinners before God. And they might look at you and go, you don't know what you're talking about. You know, you're whatever. But at some point, that message is going to penetrate and the soul will be changed. Verse 3, our appeal doesn't spring from, and here he has a triad, doesn't spring from error, impurity, or any attempt to deceive. I think the RSV has, uh, with no guile, if I, if I have that correct. <coughs> 
It's not from error. The gospel of God cannot be a mistake. It's not from impure motives. Well, had Paul been accused of impure motives? He was just here to get something from you? Well, what was he there to get from them? Well, maybe someone's saying, well, he got there so he could get your offering. Well, we'll see in a minute that he worked hard so he didn't have to be a burden to the people. And thirdly, he's not trying to trick them or manipulate them. In fact, the Greek underlying uh, word gives the, the, the sense of a cunning craft. Those who manipulate or bait, the actual Greek word is to bait someone. I was just reading about a, uh, it was actually in this morning's paper, uh, about a real estate person who had been taken by a scam from, a re from real estate people in, Mexi in Mexico and lost $24,000. But it was this long litany of all the due diligence this American had done. And everything was done by this fraudulent corporation to get that person to continue to send money for this license and that fee and this fee and that fee. And before long, she, he suddenly realized, wait a minute, this is a scam and I've been taken. And there's nothing you can do. All you can do is turn it over to the authorities and they're on the other side of the border and nothing you can do about it. He just lost the money because he was stupid. But he says, look at how well done this fraud was. They were a corporate company, a corporation that he could find. It had all of the language that was correct, but it was ultimately fraudulent. There are a lot of people like that out there who prey on those who don't understand. But verse 4, just as we have been approved by God, which means tested, to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests, there's that same idea, tests our hearts. I think when Chuck took his real estate license, that was a big deal. And how much did he have to study? It was ridiculous. Yeah, I remember him asking for prayer about it in the class just a few years back. And the amount of stuff he had to cram into his head to take a test, and then it was tough because it didn't pass the first time. He had to take it again. And then finally he was able to do it. You think of those who are the certified public account accountants who take the, uh, the CPA exam. And, you know, there's people four, five, six times. I have a brother who's a genius who passed it the first time. We all hate him. Uh, <laughs> I have another who passed it, but it took him twice. And it's just this, the idea of being tested. These people, and Paul, were tested by God and then entrusted. When you're entrusted with something, you become a steward. So if someone hands you a box of gold bullion and says, I'm putting this in your care. I'm trusting you. I am entrusting this with you. Take care of it. Make sure that it is either, either whatever instructions, use it wisely, or I would like to see it back when I come back around next time. We have been entrusted with the gospel. The gospel of God. The holy word of God. It's a holy treasure. It's a precious possession and God has chosen us to use that for good and for his kingdom not to please man but to please God who tests our hearts verse 5 for we never came with words of flattery flattery what an unusual word. I think it's only used a couple times in the entire New Testament. Um, the famous French writer, teacher, Francois Fenelon, 
was the court preacher for King Louis XIV in the 17th century. One Sunday, when the king and his attendants arrived at the chapel for the regular service, there wasn't anybody there except Francois. And the king was outraged. What does this mean? Where is everybody? And Fenelon said, I uh, sent out a notice. I published a notice that you weren't going to be here today. <laughs> because I wanted to show you who serves God in truth mm. and those who flatter the king. Mm. There was no one there. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> that was brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. That's what flattery is. Flattery is just, you know, making somebody feel good. I think uh, like I wrote, uh, there's only two types of people who fall for the concept of flattery. Uh, they are men and women. Um, you know, it narrows it right down, you know. Kind of simple. We all fall for it. And another guy put it this way. He says, you know, the human body is extremely sensitive. When you pat somebody on the back, their head puffs up. <laughs> you have to be, it's just, you have to recognize it. And when it starts making you feel good, stop yourself and say, am I feeling this because it's pure flattery just to make me feel good? And I, you know, I'm like you, I like a compliment here and there. It, there's nothing wrong with a compliment. But when it starts going to the head, and you start believing your press, that's when things get really ugly. Because he continues, he says, you know, we, weren't also, we also weren't there with a pretext for greed. God is witness. We did not seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have. They could have made the demands because they were apostles. They he could have said, hey, I'm an emissary from the church of Jerusalem. I, you know, and all this. He did not do that. It's interesting because over in Galatians chapter 1, he wrote this earlier in his life. He wrote, Am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? This is Galatians 1.10. Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Here's what I think. It's just a, my grand theory. I think Paul knew exactly how smart he was. And how, how gifted he was, and how called he was, and how special he was. He also knew how destructive that thought and that knowledge could be. And so he's regularly, throughout his letters, reminding people, it's not about me. Don't do this. It's not about me. It's about Jesus. Jesus is the one. And so, you know, I've met some people who they get really t um, tied up in their celebrity following. And that can happen in the Christian market. So I watch the people at conferences or whatever, and there goes walking, the famous author walks by, and everybody's head turns, and then suddenly you see people getting up out of their chairs, and they say, start following that person because they just want to be in the aura. That person is in danger because they start believing what they're told and don't have people around them who can ground them and say, uh, yeah, it's nice, but don't believe it. I have someone like that in my life and she's sitting right back there. <laughs> I go to writers' conferences as I am that person. I will have 10, 15 people in my peripheral vision just waiting for that moment to talk to the guy who could fulfill their dreams and get published. 
And it's very heady. <laughs> I, I, you said this to me years ago, Lisa, and I have quoted it many times. It says, you know, when you come home from one of these, it takes you three days before you're human again. <laughs> <laughs> and it's true, because you just feel like, oh, I don't do those things anymore. Well, to be fair, it's more like a little aware of it. But it's true, like when Tristina, somebody found out that, this was a few years ago, that Tristina was our daughter, her teacher, they don't know why. Your dad's a rock star. This is that you know. I'm just going on. Tristina's like he's my dad. <laughs> so, so when Steve would come and, and it's just it's just weird. It's a different world. I think we, that happens. Yeah, each matter. of us have that it doesn't, situation. Person, it yeah. could be whether the dogs in the neighborhood don't like you. I mean, you could be a doctor and you're a rock star in your your field, but wherever you are, when you excel in what you're doing, this is a dangerous thing. And Paul addresses that because I think the Jews in Thessalonica were accusing Paul of doing things for his own self-aggrandizement, to use the Philippian phrase. Yeah. I, you know, you mentioned what your, your theory was, your concept of Paul knowing, and I, I would agree with you. But he also was confronted by Christ in Damascus, he spent those years in Arabia. He he was even when he talks about um, the revelation, he talks about that third person, and and there was a man. I know you know he knows not whether he was taken up or you know all that, and he keeps saying a man, but of course that was himself. He's he's apologizing for hmm. speaking. It's it's like when you're confronted by Christ and you're no in the contrast. And what he persecuted, he could never get over that. And so he had that that agony of, 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 of crucifixion within himself and abhorrence of should anybody think him better than he was. I, I, think it was I agree. He was incredibly well grounded. Yeah. There's no, no, no question about it. He's a great model for, for all of us. Verse 7. But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Wait, Paul, you're comparing yourself to a nursing mother? That's odd. Well, he's done it before. In Galatians 4.19, he used that metaphor of seeing them as children and nurturing them. It's also very interesting. This is another little Greek quirk in the text. In your Bible, it has the word gentle. All right? The word gentle. And that is the Greek word E-P-O-I. Epoi. The oldest manuscripts and the majority of oldest manuscripts have the Greek word N-E-P-O-I, which means babies. This is one of the only times in English translation of Greek text where they actually choose the Textus Receptus, the more recent manuscript over the oldest ones. And people are going, I mean, this is a great controversy in the Greek translation world. See, the problem is, is that the previous Greek word in the sentence ends with the letter N. So it'd be like, you know, blah, 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 N, and then epoi. And someone forgot the N. One time, and then it got copied over and over and over and over and over again. So the question is: Is our Greek is our English translation correct? Well, it really doesn't matter. It's just kind of a more of a quirk. And when you read it, you can actually see the word "gentle" makes a little more sense in the in the in the phraseology in our understanding of what Paul is trying to describe. 
But it could also make sense if you have the word babies there. We were like babies among you. This idea of this nurturing intimacy, this very undescribable bond between the small baby and the nursing mother. As a man, I cannot understand it. I see it. I mentally, but I can't feel it. I don't never had that kind of bond. No man can have that kind of bond. It's not possible. So for Paul to be describing it this way is such an incredibly pastoral, loving, caring intimacy that he's trying to express. We were affectionately desirous of you. This is really interesting. You know, the the moms in the room, you know what I'm talking about. The guys in the room, you mentally understand it. And you may have seen it. And you kind of go, wow, that's pretty cool. (laughs) Uh, uh, I'll leave now. (laughs) you're, You're not there. You're not in that, you know, you're peripheral to that relationship. But what I find interesting is that in the text, jump to verse 11. For you now, you know how, like a father with his children. He won, he exhorted each one of you. Two, he encouraged you. And three, he charged you or implored you to walk Worthy, to use Dr. Delhousse's great benediction statements. Walk worthy. Walk in a manner worthy of God. He's bringing the mother, that intimacy, that, that bond that's so unusual. And then over on the other side, he's saying, and also for the father who can be, he can appeal, exhort, or to be, have admonition. He can encourage, he can comfort, but he can also charge you to implore you. I found the, the Latin word for implore is implorare, which means to invoke with tears. Those of us who have fathers and we're working with our children, there are times where we You can just sense it within you. You want so bad that they get it, that they understand to the point that you could break into tears when you're talking to your child about it and they're like, what is going on? It's not that big a deal. Yes, it is. This is what Paul is feeling for these people. We just pass right over this. (coughs) And it kind of struck me intimately, because my mom's in the hospital right now. She's 93 years old, she's having a racing heartbeat, they can't get it under control. She had a fall a couple months ago, and she's she's weak, and I just, that bond, the father-son bond is like, and I wear my dad's watch, so I see him every day. That bond from father to child, from mother to child, is something that is always there. And for Paul, he's only been away for three months and he's talking like this. Isn't that incredible? It's one of the things I love about our pastor, Jim. You can sense his love for the people. The love for the congregation, for every single person that he meets. This is a gift. But it's also something that we as believers, we can't just pass it off and go, yeah, that's the pastor's job. This is why I say, yeah, this is a wonderful passage for pastors. But each one of us, I mean, you read 1 John, it's all about loving one another. We're in the family of God, which means we'll probably bicker. You know, someone made the green beans wrong, so we'll bicker. But 
There is a love that's undergirding it all. And all throughout the New Testament, particularly in Paul's writings, he co-ops the word agape as his word for love over and over and over again. The Greek language rarely used the word agape for love. They would use phileo, the brotherly love kind of thing, constantly. But not Paul. He knew there was something special. The love of God through us pours into others and it's that godly love that we have. It's not something you can engineer thinking, today I'm going to be a loving person. You know, if you weren't already, you're probably not going to pray your way into it that easily. It takes effort and takes time. We're all ministers. We are. You remember, brothers, our labor and our toil. We work day and night that we might not be a burden. And you are witnesses of how holy and righteous and blameless our conduct is. The call here is for all of us to be and to do, as he says in verse 11, to walk in a manner worthy of God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our, our time together. An hour goes by quickly when you're in God's Word. It's amazing. And these short verses have so much. And yet, we have passed over them often as miscellaneous words of Scripture. And yet here we are today, in your economy, in your timing, that this message was for us this morning. Let's take it to heart as we move into our time of worship. In Jesus' name, amen.